I want to focus uh, our last week on presence. Uh, in two, uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about our Lord's uh, Palm Sunday uh, and then his death and resurrection. We'll have in not this next Friday, but the fr- following Friday, we'll have our Good Friday service. I want to invite you all to that. Um, also, keep uh, real quick, just keep our, the person who works in the back who does our slides, John Northrop, his father passed away last night. And so he had to take off. And so someone else is covering for him. So keep him in your prayers. If you know him, send him a kind text. Um, he's, he's, gone, he's on his way to see him, him and his family. Um, so we're, we're going to just keep moving forward here in presence. Um, I want to talk this morning about hindrances to God's presence and moving in God's presence. And, uh, and, and I want to talk about uh, some of the hiccups that really we struggle with when, uh, with constantly moving in God's presence. Um, I, I, I read the Old Testament and, uh, and, look th- and look at the Israelites and the journey that they have with God. And I, I look at that and I'm like, man, these guys are idiots. <laughs> like, it's so obvious the formula you got to follow. Like, you follow God, you prosper. You f- worship idols, you suffer. Like, God, you should have had me born back then. I would have been awesome at following you. I've been so prosperous. I wouldn't worship a stupid fake idol, a fake God. You know, and uh, they would have these things where they would do these, um, they would, you know, they would worship God in the temple or the tabernacle. And then they would have what they would call uh, idols in high places. There would be high points around the country. They would put uh, idol worship where surrounding nations would worship these idols. They, they worshiped those idols. It was like they would worship God, but they had this backup plan just in case. Like we want to please our God. He's our main one. And, but you find that God doesn't like to be shared. He doesn't allow you to have other idols in your life. And uh, I was actually attending um, our men's ministry uh, uh, on Saturday mornings. Uh, one time it was, they started at 8.30. I recommend anyone who is male to, uh, to come and join them. They do a series called Authentic Man Series. And uh, it's been a wonderful time uh, led by Paul Luce and Kenneth and I think Jesse Ponce and um, uh, Kenneth Armstrong and, and, and Jerome Riel. And, the, the, and a bunch of guys just coming together. And, um, and I, I really recommend going to it. It's, it's powerful. Um, but in one of the sessions, I, I was taking notes. And, and they, they talk about three main idols that are really prominent, not just in our church, but in, and not just in society, but in our church. These idols, they call deep idols. These idols are deep. And so manifestations of sin, manifestations of hiccups and not following God are often rooted in these three deep idols. I'm going to read them off to you. One of these deep idols is the idol of control. That we have to control the narrative, the situation. We have to have a high altar. Hey, God, we're going to follow you, but we also have this idol of control. This idol can manifest its way. Uh, maybe we lie to maintain influence. Maybe we need to have certainty or dominance or a relentless pursuit of security. Expressive p- pursuit of power. Feeling like we need to have more uh, responsibility, more power. Uh, the next uh, idol is the idol of significance. Need for affirmation and worry about rejection. I think social media has highlighted this more recently in society than, than ever before with how many likes do we have? How many followers do we have? How many 
friends are we with or, 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 you know, looking at all the highlights. You know, social media is just a highlight reel. Sometimes it's fake. You know, it's like everyone, I, I remember looking at the, you know, uh, uh, a meme before and it was just uh, uh, all these people sitting around the restaurant dinner table on their phones, like seven of them. And, uh, and that's what they looked like. And then the moment they asked the waiter to take a picture of them all, you know, they put their phones away and they're all smiling. But it looked like they're having a good time. But actually, they were just not even talking to each other. Anyway, so significance, the idol of significance, fear of letting others down or an inordinate desire for recognition. Like people need to see me. Then the third idol was the idol of comfort. Always seeking pleasure. Tendency to quit or laziness. Comfort compulsion. Always want stimulation. Not, not being still. Always wanting to take the easy route instead of taking the hard route that maybe God wants us to go through. These idols I find even in my own life where God is pointing them out to me and I'm like, wow, I didn't realize I had an idol in a high place and I was sharing my worship with you, God. And we know that in Ephesians uh, 2, 8 through 9, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So this working is a work of grace that he sanctifies us so that we can uh, uh, actually follow him and, and our, our salvation is through him alone. But there's this point of surrender that we need to have in our life where we tear down those idols that are keeping us from experiencing the fullness of God. There's one other you know, thing I think that we could talk about when it comes to hindrances in his presence is um, you know, an authentic faith, a faith that is, is, is a belief that's actually authentic in him. Um, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope is the foundation that faith is built on. It is impossible to have faith if you don't have hope. The issue is, is that our hope that we have is a earthly worldly hope and it's not a godly hope we don't realize that actually there's two different types of hope there's the hope that we're used to in society but that's not what god's expression of hope is hope in king in kingdom terms is uh, uh, an assurance of things that are going to happen but i just don't have them yet that's godly hope that's like if i had a if this is a promise and 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 i and and i believing i have faith for this promise Hope is the rope that's around the promise. And as I'm pulling on it, I don't think I might possibly could get it. I know for sure I'm about to get it. That is hope. That is godly hope. I have friends, and I, I don't suggest uh, playing the lottery. I don't think it's a great way to get rich. I think it's a great way to keep giving someone else your money. Um, there's a 99.999% a, a chance you're not going to win. But I have, I have friends... You know, they're like, Paul, you know, I don't play the lottery, but if it gets over half a million, I just, you know, I'm just going to buy a ticket because someone's got to win, right? I, I'm going to put my, my name in the hat. I don't want to not put my name in the hat. And we, and so they, they think, they know it's not normative that they're going to win, but they just hope they do. That's the kind of hope that they walk in. And then they apply that hope to God. And when every time they put their prayers, they're like, look, I, I'm, I'm not positive that you're going to come through, but at least I put my name in the hat. 
We apply this earthly hope to our God. And it's not true faith. It's not authentic. I remember when I was, um, before I was in ministry school, I was following the Lord at the time. And um, I was still working a career and on my day off, a friend of mine called me. Uh, a storm had gone through our area and, uh, and had knocked down one of his trees. His tree um, wasn't super thick, but, you know, it was like eight, ten feet tall. And, and the storm took the majority of the tree down. And, uh, and he called me. And, I, look, I don't landscape. I've never landscaped in my life. You know, I have soft hands. <laughs> not, like, I sold things. I worked in customer service. I, I'm not, I, I don't have any idea, but I'm a nice guy. And he called me and he's like, um, would you mind helping me remove this stump from my, tr- from, from my yard? My, that, that storm came through and knocked this tree over. I was like, sure, I could do that. How hard could that be? So I'm, uh, and if you, if you ever know the, the topography of, of Pennsylvania, it's like dirt and rocks, like just mixed in. And, um, and so I, I come over and he gives me a shovel and we're shoveling around and it's getting really hard. And, uh, you know, we like do a, I do like a foot moat around it and I, I try to push on my straight. It doesn't move. It doesn't move at all. So I, we're, we go a little bit around it. And, and then my friend, this is just the kind of guy he is. He's, he had a bunch of errands to run. So he's like, hey, man, do you mind just working on this while I go do some stuff real quick? And I was like, sure, sure, buddy. He had to pick up his kid and stuff. And so I was like, okay. Um, and uh, and, and I, was, I just, the thought came to my mind, how many people did this guy call before he got to me? <laughs> like, who, am I the idiot? <laughs> anyway, so, so I'm, I've, now, I've never done this before. I'm digging as deep. I mean, I'm getting under there. I can like put the shovel under there and it's still not budging at all. And, and so I, I don't know what I'm doing. So I go in his garage and I find out later this is, not very great. And I go and I take his chainsaw and I just stick it in the ground, just trying to cut the roots underneath it. And, uh, and to this day, I'm alive. Um, so it worked. But the, finally, he came back. We got ratchet straps. We got machines. And we rip. We finally get this stump out. And the Lord spoke to me. And he's like, Paul, you know, in your life, in what we would call the field of faith, you've removed the tree, but you've left the stump. And there's things that are deep-rooted that are that you think are taken care of, but because you left the stump there, you left the lie in place, so you constantly trip over it. And, and, it, and I was like, wow, okay. And so, you know, I realized that there was lies within my belief system that God had to root out. And it's funny, you can only do this with the English language, but, you know, in the word believe, right in the middle of it, you have the word lie. And sometimes in our belief system, there is a little lie that's like a little worm that's constantly tripping you up. What is that lie for you? Some, some might say it's, uh, it's that God really won't take care of my needs. And, and see, these lies allow you to start building altars to other gods. Like the altar of control. The altar of comfort. The altar of significance. Because the lie in your belief. So you're like, yeah, I believe in the Lord. I believe God. Yeah. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. You start quoting scriptures. And this is the issue here. And, and I'm just going to, can I just speak plainly with you guys? 
We get so used to the type of prayer. We know the type of prayers we need to pray. We know the, the verses that we need to quote. We know how to do church really well. So much so it becomes tradition and not from the heart. And so what we try to do is we put our best foot forward when we come to the Lord because we think that's what he's looking for. So in the midst of our faith, we have doubts. And so we're going, hey, God, here's my faith. Isn't this great? I love you. You're so great. You're awesome. But in, behind the scenes, in the back of our heart, we have these things that we're just not sure of. We're not sold on. We're not convinced let, let, me, let me read a scripture to you. Mark 9, 22 through 27. The context of this is the man uh, had a demonized son. He brings him to the disciples. They couldn't cast him out, so they bring him to Jesus. And he, Jesus said, what, what happens to this boy? And, he, and the, the father's describing it. It says, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But, you, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can... All things are possible to those who believe. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Well, let's pause right there. Because the rest of the story is, Jesus said, well, come back when you're full of belief. Right? Right? Isn't that what he would do? Because that's what we say at church. You just need to believe more. Just come back when you're full of faith. Puff up more. Furrow your brow. I used to think the more I furrowed my brow, the more powerful my prayers were. Like, Jesus, I, I really mean this one. Sometimes I think I need to increase my volume. Like God's death. It's like faith does not equate to volume. So what does Jesus say? He says, when Jesus saw a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to you, deaf and mute spirit, I command you. Come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy so much like a, uh, became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. Now, do you think that father's faith went from half belief and half unbelief to more unbelief or more belief? He increased his faith. He, he, Jesus knew that he had to bring him into a place of belief. And I think that this man is so honest with God that God actually confronts his unbelief by overcoming it. See, the reality is, is you do not overcome your, own, your unbelief yourself. You have God overcome your unbelief. The difference is, is that when you want to believe, God will overcome your unbelief. When you don't want to believe, you will not believe. Let's go to another scripture. Uh, John four forty three through 52. Um, I have it on my computer. I'll just read it from there. It's bigger text. All right. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. And once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. Wow, what a miracle. Have you ever heard the joke of the guy who got pulled over? The, the police officer is following this guy, and he's kind of swerving 
in the road, so he pulls him over, and he said, Sir, have you been drinking tonight? And he said, No, sir, just water. He said, What's in that can? And he, he, uh, get, he said, Give me that can. So he gives it to the police officer, and he says, Sir, this is alcohol. And the driver said, Darn it, Jesus, you did it again. <laughs> that man was arrested. All right. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick. His son, his literal son, lay sick at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. And Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. You know, that's how I've always read that text. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. But the reality is that the Bible, even though it gives us this information, some of us read a tone of the filter that we're used to reading. And so we read it as though Jesus is trying to condemn these people that unless they see signs and wonders, you horrible people, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. You know, I've done this in my personal life. Have you ever gotten into a fight on accident in text messaging because you read the tone wrong? They were like, yeah, man, I'll just, uh, I'll come over, you know, whenever. And then the person receiving, it's like, they read it, you'll come over whenever. (laughs) You know, and then you text something snarky back. You know, it's like, it's, it's, we got the tone wrong. We were reading our own interpretation in the text. And I, I think Jesus actually did it like this. I think he said, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them. You will never believe. That's why I think I know text messaging emojis are like amazing. Because I'll be like, I'll come over whenever, happy face. I mean, I think someone needs to make an emoji Bible. You know, like, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Happy face. Fire. Holy Spirit water. I don't know. I want some royalty if you make an emoji Bible. No, I'm just kidding. It could be a devotional. It wouldn't be something you preach from. But He says, you'll never believe. And why do I think that he said it in the tone of, of kindness instead of harshness? Let's keep reading. It says, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, go, your son will live. And the man took him at his word. And while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Jesus healed the boy. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And so what did he do? He healed him. This spoke of Jesus' divinity. It spoke of his deity. It testified of his goodness. And so instead of us trying to think that we need to just show face to God, he actually wants us to come boldly to him going, God, I do believe. Can you help my unbelief? You know, some of us think like I've made this decision to live my life for Christ at one point in my life and uh, and that it's going to stay absolutely solid. The whole experience that I have, my whole journey with Christ. But the reality is, is you're living your life. And so when you live your life, things happen. Disappointments happen. 
Things do not go the way you thought they were going to go. Your prayers maybe are being answered in a different way, or maybe they're not answered as quickly as you'd like them to be. And so all of a sudden, the solid faith that maybe you had when you entered the kingdom has now kind of eroded, and you haven't told the Lord about it. You've been just trying to save face. I think half the time, God's like, when are you going to show me the good, the, the bad, and the ugly? Because when you're honest with him, then he can work with that. And he said, okay, I can work with this. See, some people believe, some theologians will believe that uh, unbelief is the unpardonable sin. If you've refused to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, how can he forgive something that you refuse? How can, you, how can he uh, give you the gift that you refuse to accept. And so some would say that the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, is, uh, which testifies of Christ, is actually re- refusing the gift that he's giving you. And so they would then conclude that unbelief is the unpardonable sin. But as I read scripture, I believe that that possibly is true. I, I believe that actually is true. But the difference is, is that even if unbelief is unpardonable, in Jesus' eyes, it's not not overcomable. See, Jesus, time and time and time again in Scripture, what does he do with unbelief? He overcomes it. But if you can't present him with it, how can he overcome it? Let's go to John 20, 24 through verse 29. John 20, 24 through verse 30. The disciples are scared. They're in the upper room. Jesus has resurrected, um, but they're, they, they're not sure yet. Jesus was um, a, a part of Jesus' resurrection for 40 days. He's, he's resurrected. He re- reveals himself to hundreds of people. It wasn't just like three people and then he took off. No, he stayed for 40 days. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Hundreds of people seen him and testified of him and witnessed him. But the disciples at this point are still scared in the upper room. Some of them are dispersed, um, but the 12 uh, are are, are up there. And it says that uh, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Let's stop there for a second. Let's just think about the scenario. We don't know exactly the full context, but for some reason, Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them in that room. We don't know why. Some think that Thomas was just like off on his own, like running around. You know what I think? This is Paul, Paul Martini's interpretation. Okay, this isn't Bible. This is Paul talk. I think, see, these guys are scared. They're afraid they're going to be persecuted. They have not been empowered by the Holy Spirit yet. They're still shaking in their boots. And I think they had to draw straws for somebody to get groceries. For some reason, Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why. So I think, so, so imagine this. They're scared in their boots. Jesus had died. They, they have not seen him yet. And now he's, received, he's revealed himself to the disciples. So Thomas comes back with his bags of groceries. And they're like, Thomas, brother, you are not going to believe this. For we have seen the Lord. And he's like, you got to be kidding me. Are you kidding me? No way. 
I don't believe it. Not, not until uh, I put my hands in his holes. Not until I put my, my fingers in his holes, my hand in his side. I'm not going to believe it. You guys had your experience. I want my experience. And you know what happened? Jesus just never came back. Right? No, no, let's keep, let's keep reading. It says, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas was with them because he probably refused to leave at this point. It said, Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I want to read this excerpt from Aquinas. And normally when you preach a message, you don't read an excerpt from a book. But if you can zone in for like 20 seconds and take this, this is going to be powerful. Because Thomas to this day is called Doubting Thomas. So I'm going to read. Of course, this doubt was put to rest when Jesus appeared and showed his wounds to Thomas the apostle who then touched them and believed. But how can this be called faith? We know that faith regards things which are not seen. But the apostle did not believe until after he had seen the risen Christ. So how is this faith when you have already seen? Thomas Aquinas, following Augustine, offers a most ingenious explanation of this verse. See, the apostle Thomas saw one thing but believed another. He saw the humanity of Christ but believed in his divinity. He saw that Christ had risen from the dead as a man but believed in his eternity as God. Thus, Thomas the apostle cries out, my Lord and my God. This is the clearest affirmation of the divinity of Christ than any of the other apostles ever gave before Pentecost. This then is the substance of the apostle's faith. He believed and proclaimed the divinity of Christ, something which none of the other apostles had yet done. He shouldn't be called Thomas the doubter. He should be called Thomas the proclaimer. Because in the gospels, he was the first one. Because Jesus knew, see, Jesus spent 40 days really rallying his troops, witnessing, showing himself, but rallying his troops because he knew that there was unbelief that were rising in people's hearts. And the only one, these are followers who've seen amazing miracles through Jesus Christ, yet unbelief was rising in their hearts. And so what did he have to do? He had to reveal himself to them. He had to bring them back. He, like that man, I, I do believe, help my unbelief. He's like, I got to bring you back into full belief. But until you're as honest as Thomas, until you finally go, God, I, I, look, I believe in you, but man, I'm struggling. You know, my father died uh, January 2020, right before the outbreak of COVID, of a, of a heart attack. And, it, you know, I actually had just, I'd been fine. You know, people are like checking on me. I'm like, you know, I'm okay. And he was a believer and, and uh, that, but, but. I just, I have, I had four kids. I have a wife. I was, you know, constantly busy. And so I put myself more into what I was doing. And, um, and I thought I was fine. I thought I was fine. Until one day the Lord's like, 
So when are you going to talk about your dad? When are we going to take care of this, Paul? I was like, God, I'm okay. I'm a pastor. I'm fine. It's easy. I'm good. I trust you. It's good. He's like, no, Paul. When are you going to talk to me about it? When are you going to share your disappointment with me? When are you going to be really honest with me? Because until you're honest, I can't deal with this. I can't heal it. I can't overcome it. I can't confront it because you're hiding it. And I was like, okay, God. And I know if I'm a pastor who's committed my life to Jesus and I still struggle sometimes, not that I'd struggle in the divinity of Christ, I'm convinced he's God, but I still struggle in my faith. I still start building some altars, some backup plans. So I'm like, God, I trust you. I know this is gonna, this is gonna be great, but just in case. Got a little thing over here, just in case. He doesn't have all my trust. Sometimes I got, he's got to bring me back. I got to be honest, say, God, would you overcome it? Why don't you stand? See, nothing can replace the encountering presence of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not your beautiful spouse, your money, your materials. He is irreplaceable and your heart will be hopeless without him. So I want to pray for you all. Wherever you're at, God can move in this room right now, wherever you're sitting. And if this resonated with you, I just want you to, oh, I just, as a church family, let's just close our eyes, bow our heads, and let's pray. Because I know we're living on time. Father, I just pray right now. Jesus, we come to you. We come in our weakness. We come in our strength. We come in our belief. We come in our unbelief. We come with stumps of doubt that still need to be removed. God, we come believing lies that, we know our lies. We just, it's just so hard to believe the truth sometimes. Holy Spirit, would you move through this room? Would you highlight the idols we've built as security blankets? Lord, we just say we're going to surrender our whole life to you. Do what you need to do in our lives. Break down the lies. You know, one of the ways that I found out later you can remove stumps is through dynamite. Thank God I didn't have any that day. But sometimes I think we've been struggling to remove some doubts on our own when really it's just an encounter, a dynamic, dynamite experience with the Holy Spirit that just breaks its stronghold. So Lord, we come to you. Would you blow up every every, every idol, every doubt? We just want to give it all to you. I want to open these altars right now. If anything in this message, I talked about a hundred things today. Anything in this message just touched you in a, in a powerful way. I want to pray with you. I want you to come forward. Don't be shy. This is what family does.